Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelley, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverend Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. It helps make things happen. You know, it really does help make things happen. That's what I notice, you know, since it happens. It does happen. <laughs> things start. You can get on Spotify or Apple or Zoomacroom or that's one I made up. Um, but anyway, you can get on. You can find your podcast. It's great. Uh, and thanks to the Patreon money, we can keep producing podcasts. But if you would like to make the show happen, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You also get access to a patron-only podcast feed, including a bonus content and the patron-only podcast that Ian and Joe record, which is called Pillow Talk. There's still surprise content because Ian is still traveling. Um <laughs> Although I think Joe should produce uh, Pillow Talk, Pillow Talk, which is where Joe talks to a pillow because Ian is not there. <laughs> Can uh, we you watch imagine? Joe. We watch Joe just descent into madness. <laughs> Why she, won't you answer me? Talk no, to me. No. <laughs> that would not be great for anybody. No, what we're actually doing is I'm reading the short story Nightfall by Isaac Asimov because I promised we would do that on a pillow talk a while ago. And so I think part, I think I lied in the last Patreon ad. I think part three is out with this episode. Oh. So, Yeah. That's the, great. The, the robots, the robots are attacking. It's a different one, but oh, um, well, fair enough. Maybe next time we'll read a robot story. Who knows? You never know. But you can also, if you do not want to join the Patreon, we understand, it, like, nobody has money these days, inflation. You can also rate, review, and subscribe and share us on social media or just keep listening because that's good too. It, it is good. You should still subscribe and give us your money on Patreon. Like, Joe's not telling you to not give money. She's just <laughs> understands if you don't, but that doesn't get you off the hook. Anyway, now on to the show. One, two, five, nine. Robin, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have a guest with us. Kate Mackworth Fulton is here to talk about their journey into ministry and where they're at right now and, and what ministry looks like in this brave new world we all find ourselves in. So Kate, welcome. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and as much information as you want to share? Sure. I'm Kate. My pronouns are she and they. And presently, I serve as the pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church in Germantown, Maryland. I also serve the Young Clergy Women International Community as their vice chair. Uh, and I have a couple other volunteer shenanigans sprinkled here and there, but um, those are my main ministry gigs. I am also mom to a horde of animals, uh, Louise, who is a Basset Hound mix, and two cats, Vinny and Gracie, and whatever foster animals we have in the house this week. Nice. That's all so exciting. You said mom, and I was like, do you have kids that I didn't know about? But No, I do not. <laughs> I Thank you for that. checking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so full disclaimer to everybody, Kate does work on the board of the organization that employs me, but uh, you're not technically my direct supervisor. I am not. No. Nope. You're a collaborator. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what to do with that disclaimer, but that's a fact that we all get to know now. Mm -hmm. So Kate, 
I want to hear a lot about how you how you got involved with the different organizations and volunteer things that you got involved with over the course of your clergy career so far, because every time I talk to you, I feel like I'm learning a new thing that you're doing. <laughs> but before we talk about that, how did you get into ministry in the first place? Kind of what what led you to this career path or calling? Sure. So uh, I grew up in an evangelical church plant called Christ United Methodist Church of Ballinger Creek, uh, which is uh, unfortunately since closed. But I started attending there when I was like nine-ish. My parents moved into the neighborhood. Um, They met at a middle school that was literally two blocks away. So that's where we went. And when I was about 15, the church took the kids on a mission trip, as you do. Mm -hmm. And... To give you an idea of the, uh, how do I want to describe, uh, denominational flavoring of this church. Um, We had a big cross and flame on the front of the building, but that was the only place where we were actually United Methodist. We were mostly Southern Baptists in our actual taught theology. I'm very familiar with this type of church, yeah. Okay. And the youth pastor that we employed at the time, um, who's now an elder in our conference, was a Liberty graduate, grew up Southern Baptist. So our church did mission work through the North American Mission Board, which is an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we go on this mission trip and the last night, as you, as you do, they have an altar call and the flavor of this altar call was a little strange. They asked the boys to pray about whether or not they were being called to the mission field. They asked the girls to pray about whether or not they were being called to be pastor's wives. I want to punch something, right? right? I can feel my hands like curling up. I got a flashbacks and also I want to punch something. Right? <laughs> this is not me threatening violence to anybody in the world. This is me reacting to this memory. <laughs> so um, being contrary, I just immediately was like, well, no. Um, <laughs> like everything in my being was like, I don't want to be a pastor's wife and still is that way, which got real awkward in seminary when everybody was pairing off like Noah and the damn ark. But <laughs> um, so I prayed And 20 minutes later, I walk back out and I tell my youth group that I feel like God is calling me to something. Now, this put my church, unbeknownst to me, in a really awkward position. Because on the one hand, like at the vision conference where this church was kind of came into being, there was a specific prayer prayed that children raised in this church would grow in their faith to the point of declaring a desire for full-time Christian service, whatever that looked like. Hmm. On the other hand, nobody thought it would be a girl. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I go home and I'm like, like the lukewarm reception that I'd gotten on the trip itself was already like, okay, I need to like keep this info to myself. But The pastor we had at the time was brand new. Our church had just gone through a whole lot of drama. The senior pastor who had founded the church had been put on involuntary leave. Like it was messy. The new pastor who came in, his wife was a youth pastor, not an ordained elder or deacon, but a youth pastor. And so he had a uh, more supportive framework than a lot of the adults in the youth program, interestingly. So... I sat on this. I thought about it. I prayed about it. I 
made the decision to go to a Christian college, but I didn't want to major in biblical and religious studies. Hmm. There was a part of me that was like, surely I can't actually be like a local pastor. Like I could be a pastoral counselor or something, but I, I'm not going to go like, like preach or anything like that's No. So I went to Messiah College, now Messiah University, and majored in psychology. Um, and while I was there, I got hooked up with a, another Methodist church, purely coincidentally, um, was not looking for Methodists. You know, again, my church back home was not like real Methodisty, but the church I went to in college was uh, First UMC Mechanicsburg, and they were very Methodisty. The senior pastor there was a former DS. Um, they had a pastoral counseling center that was run by a female pastor, and Mike and Lucretia, who were the senior and associate pastor there, just really spent two years like trying to convince me that I could do local church ministry. Hmm. And I was really hesitant about it. I was, and then I was very clear about why I was like, you know, my home church, um, as I was in college was getting its first female and only female pastor. And it was a shit show. Like 30 families left the church before she even got there. My God. Um, like it was a disaster. And so I was watching this unfold and going, oh, hell no. No, 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 no. I am mm -mm, not called to that mess. Um, and <laughs> that might be the episode title. <laughs> not called to that mess. <laughs> and, but Mike and Lucretia were, were so, so I was actually their worship leader for a contemporary service. Um, you know, I sang and played the guitar a little bit. So I had a lot of interaction with them and they were so, so kind and loving and um, without being pushy, really affirming that I could, I should think beyond the idea of, of just doing counseling. Mm. So I was hearing this, I was starting to think about seminaries and I was looking primarily at, at schools that had both an MDiv and an uh, MF program, which is you know, uh, marriage and family therapy. Oh. And Mike Minix, God bless him, was like, you should look at Wesley. And I was like, I grew up in Frederick, so was very familiar with DC, but did not want to be that close to home or my parents. Like, just I wanted to go way the hell away. Mm. And Mike was like, just look at Wesley. Just, just go there. Just take a look at it. If you don't like it, you know, I won't mention it again, but just go. And so I went and the traffic alone nearly put me off. <laughs> but once I got there, there was, I can't pinpoint one moment in that day where I was like, this is, this is where I need to go. But I know I called my dad from the parking lot at the end of that day and said, I think God is calling me into ministry, which is the first time my parents had heard those words. And I would want to go to this school. Mm. Can I pause you before we get get to Wesley? Because this has already oh. been quite a journey so far. First, mm -hmm. I saw Ethan raise a hand, make a face. Was there somebody you recognized in the story? Mike Minix is five out of five. One of the best pastors I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. Easily. 
easily. He married my parents. He, oh. they were, he was my parents' pastor in the 80s. And is just five out of five. Really, really great. Really, really great. So mm-hmm. that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, Mike, Mike is an awesome, awesome dude. Unfortunately, I've not kept in touch with him since he retired, but uh, he was he was just absolutely fan-freaking-tastic in cool. being a gentle, affirming encourager of my call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, they brought him out of retirement because there, there was a sort of a failed experiment at the conference mm. in Harrisburg to yeah. try to basically get all the churches of Harrisburg into form one church. It was a giant, it was awful. It was such mm-hmm. a bad idea. Um, it was nobody's fault except for the person we had hired to run the Equipping Vital Congregations group at the conference mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially she bungled the whole thing and and only two churches wanted to form together. And Chris mm-hmm. Sledge, I don't know if you know Chris. I do. Chris Sledge pastors that church now, like the, okay. of the two churches. But one of the churches was this really historic church, Grace UMC, mm-hmm. and they wanted to stick around, but they wanted to become reconciling. Mm-hmm. And so the only pastor that that was willing to do it was Mike Minnick. So they took him out of retirement and they made him the part-time pastor of this tiny reconciling historic church in Harrisburg. And Mike Minnick's in two years doubled the membership of that church. Oh, I believe. And so like he's... I think the world of Mike Minix. I think that guy is just terrific. So, mm-hmm. so I I love the idea of somebody who is gently affirming a call. Uh, mm-hmm. I I have to say that like any time somebody named a call on me, it was always done in this way that I learned to recognize. It was primarily done by like people that I grew up with, and then it happened again in college in the same way. So I didn't trust it, but they would say. Uh, opposite to your experience they would say you know i think you could be a pastor someday or you know you're a real good preacher and i always heard that as this like you know you really should do this you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't optional it wasn't a nudge it was like a with a saying the thing without saying the thing Mm -hmm. and so i as a result felt pretty coerced into ministry but it sounds like your experience is the opposite that like you were able to identify that this is something that you wanted to do with your life. You changed your dreams based on the theology you were given. And then you were able to have somebody else like kind of pull you in the right direction. Can you reflect on the emotional and spiritual toll of knowing you have a call and being told you can't possibly have that call? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's been a key aspect right up into my present appointment. Mm. Um, I don't think anything (laughs) has ever been handed to me. Um, You know, there is a, almost a shame inherent in feeling that you are being called to something and then having everyone around you going, no. You cannot possibly do that. Like, mm. you know, it, it makes you question not just yourself, but also your relationship with the divine. Like, if yeah. I'm not hearing yeah. this right, what else am I not hearing right? Like, yeah. if, I, if I'm not, if I'm not fit for this, then 
am I missing out on my life's purpose? Am I, am I not good enough to do the work God has called me to do? Or is it that everybody else understands God better than me? And I just need to get on the train. You are naming my college experience. Yeah. 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 So for me, it, pursuing my call has, has meant having to be grounded in it to a greater extent than I think a lot of my peers have had to do hmm. because there was always this aspect. There was always somebody on the other end pushing back saying, you know, you can't do this. You, you're just doing it for attention. You're just, you know, um, you know, you're not, you're teaching incorrect theology. You're doing this and that and the other. Um, there was always somebody on the other end pushing back. So in order to move through it, I had to be so grounded in what my call was, but also know that I couldn't be happy doing anything else. Mm. And mm. that comes into play like two years into my Wesley journey. Yeah. So I, my grandfather had died like my second semester in seminary mm. and looking back now at the age of 36, I can say that three of my four um, major depressive episodes happened because I lost someone close to me. Um, this was number three. And I had no concept of how to ask for help or really even talk about mental illness within the framework of seminary in the church at all. So what happened was I became less and less functional over the course of a year. You know, I, I failed evangelism twice. I just stopped going to class. I stopped turning on the papers. Like, and nobody yeah. checked in on me. Like, <sighs> nobody was, nobody was asking what was wrong. No, but like no, no, the, I'm keenly aware that the experience I'm describing now is not who Wesley is. And I know that my story plays a part in that journey, but at the time, nobody was checking in. Nobody gave a shit until I failed my third class in a row, which triggered a separation from the seminary, which is oh. where you got called into the Dean's office. And they're like, you have a year to put your shit together. And then you can reapply if you still want to continue your degree. Wow. It's not quite expulsion, but it's the next step up. And I was devastated. I thought, you know, this is partly the depression talking, but I thought I have missed out on what I was supposed to do with my life. And now I just have to go figure out what the fuck I'm going to do with the rest of it. Hmm. So I got a job at a big data and analyst firm downtown doing real estate analysis, um, which was so completely different from what I had been doing is to be like completely different worlds. How did you get that job? Uh, so fun story. My parents are both real estate appraisers and my dad uses the software this company produces. And he said, I know they're always looking for people. They're right downtown, go apply. And so I, I did. And I was still like very much in a functional days of like, I, like, I don't know what's, I had to move back in with my parents at the age of 25, which was like the single most humiliating experience of my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
you know, I would drive to work in the dark. I'd work all day in this cubicle. I'd go home in the dark. So I spent a year like that. And slowly, slowly healing, slowly getting back on the right meds and figuring out how to, how to function with depression. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, if I don't at least try to go back and do this, I think I will regret it for the rest of my life. Hmm. Like, I, it, even if I fail at it, I need to know that I tried. Yeah. So I went back. But this was also right after GC 2012, where there was more, you know, queer drama. And I knew enough about myself at that point to know I was queer, but I wasn't actually saying that to myself. Hmm. Um, and my grandmother, who's an atheist, God bless her, was like, look, you're seven degrees short of the 60 credit masters, which is what Wesley offered at the time. Right now it's 30 credits. Mm -hmm. Just go back, get those seven credits, graduate, and you'll have a master's to show for it. Yeah. So I did. And realized like at graduation that that had been a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> so I waited another year kept working full time at the awful cubicle data farm downtown to make sure that this is indeed what I wanted to do. It took 13 months to get myself back in the ordination process in a different district as a certified candidate. But I went back and I finished the thing. But part of that process was developing a skill set. You know, so I spent two and a half years at the awful cubicle farm. Mm -hmm. um, and then I managed an apartment complex in Arlington for, for a year and a half. Uh, before I went back to work in the church. And even then it was as a director of operations. But part of my grounding is actually having that second skill set. I, I have a whole thing that I can go do if ministry blows up in my face tomorrow. And honestly, I've made more money doing that than I have in ministry so far. Yeah. So having that little escape hatch gives me a whole lot more flexibility in being able to assess what's going on around me. I'm not trying to figure out how to monetize a degree that is really worthless outside the, the church at academia. Yeah. Um, you know, I can just pretend it doesn't exist and go do a thing and I will still have a way to make a living. Um, but that grounding, you know, again, wouldn't have been part of my journey had I not had this experience of somebody you know, sitting down in Amy Oden's office, who was the Dean of Wesley at the time, and having her say, you know, you need to figure out if you want to do this and if you can do this. And that was an incredibly painful, heartbreaking experience, but it also shaped my own desire once I came back to talk about mental health in the church in a way that mm -hmm. has been really formative in the life of my ministry. Mm. That was a very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was great. I, um, gosh, I came out of seminary. I also had a major depressive episode <laughs> in seminary. Um, mm -hmm. but I, yeah, but I did not end up in the situation that you were in. Um, mm -hmm. I just kind of stumbled forward until, uh, depression became everything about my life and how it colored my ministry, uh, which was it, not fair for my first congregation, but here we are. It, it was how we all coped with things. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
Yeah, I I came out of seminary being like, you know, my mental health is better when I talk about mental health. So therefore, I'm going to talk about mental health. In my congregation, it, it definitely got turned on its head and became um, something that would get thrown in my face um, mm-hmm. from time to time, which I did not appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that this I'm glad that this experience is formative for you. I am grieving so much <laughs> on your behalf that like. Mm-hmm that there that there just wasn't the care there like and and that's probably part of why i was able to get through my depressive episode at wesley that um my professors were all very understanding there was a lot of extensions given there was a lot of grace given um and i'm very thankful for that so and i know that i know that there was a student movement that happened while i was gone that happened in part in response to the fact that everybody knew I was getting kicked out and mm. nobody really understood what was going on. Um, and Scott Bostick was really key in that um, setting up conversations. And Wesley now has like a whole like committee on their staff that deals with this sort of thing um, and offers training to staff and things like that. And that did not exist uh, mm. when I was there the first time. That is a, product of that that I am grateful for. Mm-hmm. You know, I can say, you know, when my aunt died, my second go around at Wesley, it was way easier to eat. Like number one, I knew, I knew enough to email the Dean and say, <laughs> this is happening. Um, and I, I may need some help down the line. And number two, you know, I, the, the response from the staff was just so, so much better. Mm-hmm. You know, people were checking on me. People were, you know, proactively saying, how can I support you? Um, And I realized that, you know, professors with, you know, 150 students per semester to manage, that isn't always possible. But I do think Wesley has made enormous strides in this area from the time I was in school. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Do you, I want to move on to talking about what your ministry looks like now or kind of your first couple of years in ministry, if you want to share about that. But is there anything else about Wesley that you want to reflect on before we move on? We like to trash Wesley on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there's some stuff to, to rag on it about, but like mm. there's a deep love for the school still. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say the only other thing about Wesley that was really key for me was it was the place where I came to own my queer identity. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, There had really not been room for that in my high school, in my undergrad. Like, you know, if you were, if you were anywhere on under the queer umbrella, you needed to shut the fuck up about it, you know? And Wesley, Wesley, I lived right down the hall from Joey Heath Mason and a couple other folks who were, who were out and, and gay and like, really had done the work of understanding themselves and and knowing how to integrate that into their theology. Mm-hmm. And that was the, my first real exposure to the idea that you could be queer and be part of the church. It wasn't the school itself necessarily like they they weren't necessarily like, you know, holding pride parades at that point or anything like that. But um, Wesley being the kind of place where you could come from a broad spectrum of theologies and be present mm-hmm. and and interact with one another was so key. And I don't think I necessarily would have come to my queer identity when I did 
if it weren't for that experience. Yeah. That having been said, I came to my queer identity at a point where I was already a certified candidate for ordination. And I understood that, you know, um, if I held a woman's hand, if I kissed her, if I dated one, that it would cost me my call. So I made a very deliberate choice to, in, in the great words of the Book of Mormon, turn it off, light <laughs> switch, you know, and just not, not acknowledge that part of myself. Mm-hmm. And that cost me a whole lot but I didn't know, I didn't know that at the time. And I, di- I, I didn't really understand that until much more recently. Yeah. Can we, are, are we down to like go into the bias of it all? Yes. Because, mm-hmm. because I, um, you've recently been on a podcast about being bi. What's the name mm-hmm. of it? Life of bi. Life of bi. Like I'm, I'm just here for it. Um, <laughs> And I, so I also came to my queer identity in seminary after a lot of deconstruction of the purity movement. Like mm-hmm. that's what seminary was for me. That's yep. most of my academic papers were on that. Like mm-hmm. it was, let's talk like deep systematic theology. Let's talk Bonhoeffer. And then also like, let's tear down the purity movement. Mm-hmm. And there is something, I mean, I started dating my now partner, Ian, my last year of seminary. And I, like, as a certified candidate, as, like, a local church pastor, there was always this thought in the back of my head that, like, if Ian gets hit by a bus tomorrow, I'm going to date a woman. I'm kind mm-hmm. of done with men right now, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like is a thing that them bias say a lot. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, and I was like, well, that's like, like, then that's it, you know, like, there's this part of me that I would love to give life to, that the church would love for me not to give life to. Mm-hmm. And carrying that around is, it's not the same as being married to a person of the same gender, where like, the church is going to full force say, no, we, we are against you in the book of discipline. But it's knowing that like, the potential for the church to come after you was always there. Mm-hmm. Does that reflect on your experience? Like how, how do you, cause you are out, how does your identity impact all of this? Sure. So um, I came to my, my identity as demigender much more recently than, than mm-hmm. my, my bias. I knew I was bi and could articulate it by the time I started dating the person who's now my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's been part of part of our identity as a couple from the very beginning. Like that's something he has been hugely supportive of and um, really, really helpful in terms of giving me the grounding to feel um, to feel safe articulating that. Mm. That having been said, I was not out in my ministry settings until 2021. Okay. So the way that worked was I was the associate at a, at a very prestige, rich white people church in Southern Montgomery County. Hmm. And the senior pastor there had made clear to me when I started there that like, I think his exact words were, anytime you preach on homosexuality, I will have a mess to clean up. Oh God. Right. Uh, this person has since left the UMC and is now transferred his credentials to the Global Methodist Church. Surprise, surprise. So when General Conference 2019 came around, 
um, I was approached by the SPRC of that church. And they basically said, look, we know the senior pastor is really not equipped to have these kind of tough conversations. We know that it's something that you are interested in. Um, would you be willing to, to take the lead on shaping our response? Hmm. Um, which I was happy to do, but also introduced like this whole awkward dynamic um, between me and the senior pastor and between me and the more conservative arm of that church um, where people perceived me as as pushing the church toward becoming more progressive. Now, this is Southern Montgomery County, like is progressive. But the way we had to go about it was I was very, very careful because I had in the back of my mind, like if anybody ever does find out that I'm by, I don't want them to be able to say that I pushed my own agenda. Right. So the way we structured it was really careful. We had listening sessions. We had 220 people from the church sign up to like go to these little small groups and talk about how they felt about the church and Bible and, and homosexuality. And I didn't ask for any feedback from those groups except for what would you like to see the church do next? Hmm. And the overwhelming response that we got back from those groups was we want to pursue becoming reconciling. Wow. Oh, that's not what I expected. My brain was going back to all the homophobia I had to absorb when I was a pastor. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so pleased. Right? And so, but because we had, you know, this obvious divide within the pastoral leadership about it, the church council decided that the the best way to go about this was you know, normally you have a vote at the end after the reconciling process. We had a vote going in. Oh, wow. And that was re like we had a special charge conference for it. It was like big damn deal. But we needed that because the senior pastor had been so uninvolved in this mm -hmm. process that we needed the mandate from the congregation. So we had that vote. And I think it was something like 219 to 22 in favor wow. of, of, of beginning the reconciling process. Wow. Six weeks later, that, that uh, not even, um, four weeks later, that pastor announced that he was leaving the church. Um, <laughs> and so we had this, this messy mid-year transition and the church also receiving its first black female senior pastor. Um, oh, wow. Right. And this is January, 2020. Oh my so, God. Right. Um, but at this point, my health had been steadily deteriorating since I started at this church mm. to the point where like we knew something was drastically wrong. I couldn't walk to the mailbox without pain. Mm. I had to, I was literally clinging to the pulpit as I, as I prayed for the congregation the day the senior pastor announced he was leaving. And finally we got an answer to some of that. It turned out that I had something called chronic bilateral exertional compartment syndrome. Uh, which is a fancy way of saying that my my um, the muscle coverings in my legs weren't working anymore and needed to be cut open. Oh my god! So I had five surgeries in 2020. One of which happened like right at the start of COVID, and the rest like during, which made life so much more interesting. Wow! But at the same time, I'm like guiding this process. I am 
trying to stand in front of the the new senior pastor who was getting a whole lot of flack that she did not deserve mm-hmm. because she's not Adam. You know, she is a woman. She's black you know, in this very white sundown community. Uh-huh. Um, and the there there came a point where I had a conversation with my one of my doctors where I was like describing what was going on at work. And they were like, you know, chronic stress is a trigger for inflammation. Yeah. Isn't it? (laughs) And all of your, all of your issues are inflammation related. And I was like, well, okay, great. What, what do I do with that? I, and I had no intention of ever coming out at this church. Like Mm -hmm. the, the, the tone had been so firmly set by the senior going in that I was like, okay, I might come out at my next church but it won't be here. And then I went on a, a study leave for a week in 2021. Um, my husband and I rented a house by a river. He went and did what I like to call old white people stuff, you know, going to look at graves and war sites and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I stayed in and read and, um, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was next. And the, the answer that I came back from in my, in my prayer was that you, you need to come out. Hmm. I was like, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Right. Um, <laughs> Excuse me, good Holy Spirit. I know better than you. Well, I mean, and this is basically what I did you know, the first time I got my call, right? I was like, eh, I, I don't think you mean what you think you mean. Like, I think you mean this. So I talked to my husband about it. We had some conversation and I talked to the senior pastor about it because my senior pastor, the new senior pastor is also on the exec board of the board of Bourdain ministry. Oh, and I was like, here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to, cause I was also due to be ordained that year. And I did not want anybody to say that I had gotten my credentials through omission or through, dishonesty you know i i wanted to be ordained as fully out Hmm. i talked to her and i was like look i'm going to give you some information and then you take as long as you need to think about that and come back to me when you're ready to talk it was two weeks (laughs) (laughs) the longest chronic stress right and she came back and she was like let's do this how can i support you Okay. Which was given, given her context and, you know, I, I wasn't sure of the, of how she was going to respond. And I was so grateful. So it then, from then on, it was this, this, um, this very slow process of, you know, coming out in my written work, coming out in my ordination interviews, coming out to my SPRC. And then in September, 2021, I came out to my congregation. This was like three weeks before our annual conference. Wow. And I timed it because I wanted them to know, like if there was drama at annual conference and it's Baltimore, Washington. So there is always drama at annual conference. um, I wanted them to know why, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to have to explain that context after the fact. So I came out in a sermon and I I thought the congregation would be okay, but I wasn't sure how they were going to feel like if, mm-hmm. if it was going to stir up more of the bad feelings about the previous senior pastor leaving, 
so, you know, I, I gave the sermon and I left the pulpit and I walked to the back of the chancel where my seat was. This is a big chancel. And when I turned around, sorry, I'm going to get emotional. Um, everybody was on their feet. And it was, it was just this beautiful healing moment mm. after all of the drama and all of the pain and all of the accusations that had come after the senior pastor left about how I ran him out on a rail. And, you know, um, like at that point, I didn't care if I got retained or not. Like I was just like, <sighs> okay, thank God. You know, mm -hmm. I can, I can take a big breath. And then of course I was ordained. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. But, um, my gender queerness actually is a much more recent thing. Mm -hmm. Um, like I'd spent a year thinking about like, I really like she, they pronouns. Like I would kind of like to use them, but feeling this like deep need to like be able to like write a dissertation about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, because when we, when we come out, people want more information. Right. Mm -hmm. And I could do that about bisexuality. I could talk about how, you know, since I was 13, I've, I've always been attracted to both men and women. You know, this is, this is a part of who I am. Um, and here, here are some interesting figures in the Bible. Let's look at, let's talk about David. Um, right. <laughs> you know, and the, but I couldn't do that for gender queerness. Um, I couldn't really find resources to help me figure out like what I was until I saw on, I saw a meme on Insta um, that described demigender uh, as a person who feels only partially connected to a gender identity. And I was like, yes, that, that, that is, that's me. That's me. Okay. Now I have a word. Now I can, now I can use this. But in the interim, I'd moved congregations. So I'd gone from this congregation that was, that had really been so supportive and so, you know, we, we had been on a journey together to a congregation where, um, you know, threats were being made against me because I was making people wear masks in worship. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, so that coming out process has been very different. You know, there was no big announcement. I did like, all I did was change my pronouns in my email and on the website bio. Like there hasn't been any real discussion about it. Um, I know some people have seen it. I know some people are coming to the church because I'm there and I'm queer and they think therefore the church is, is a safe space for them. Mm. But this church is not reconciling. They have not done that work. So there's a safety element to that. You know, it's, it's, can I have this conversation with them and be physically safe? Mm -hmm. You know, how are they going to react? Do those people have guns? Right. 
And that has been a much more muted process. Um, you know, 90% of the people in my life know that I'm genderqueer. Um, I would say probably about 30 of them, 30% of those make any effort to use a pronoun other than she for me. Um, so I really appreciate Joe that you've been consistent about using they, that helps me feel seen. Thank you. Um, of course. but there, there's grief for me, definitely knowing that, you know, I am that I know of the only non-binary clergy person serving in the Baltimore Washington conference. Hmm. Um, there's probably like maybe one or two handfuls of us in the U.S. connection. Um, so your world gets smaller and smaller in terms of finding people who share your experience and can, and can speak to it and within it. And that makes it that much harder to feel safe even within, you know, clergy spaces, you know, it, this annual conference that just passed for us was the first time we've been in person since 2019. And man, people were reacting differently. Yeah. I, you know, I read as visibly queer where I didn't before, you know, I, um, I made a big deal in clergy session about how they'd put a non-binary category in the clergy demographics, but hadn't actually bothered to ask anybody if they were non-binary which is like, why? <laughs> like, why would, why did you bother only doing half the work? I mean, that's how conferences be, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was really interesting to see, like, see how, you know, people were physically reacting to me. You know, and I didn't bring my, my, like, this queer clergy person loves you t-shirt or anything like that. You know, I, I was just running around in, in normal business clothes and people were still like, some were hesitant to approach me. Some were like being overly friendly. Um, hmm. and, and that, that's the other thing, like having to navigate like the people who do actually support you versus the people who want to be read as supportive. Yeah. Cause those are two different things. Um, and I don't think we talk about that enough as the church. Um, I know a whole lot of congregations that would like to be read as supportive. S much, much fewer that are actually doing the hard work mm -hmm. of becoming really intersectionally um, egalitarian in their in their approach to to life and ministry. Yeah, I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> No, that's, that is plenty. Yeah. Gosh, I, oh, I have so many questions going to follow up on, on this and directions that we could go. We are coming up on the hour. So Ethan, I want to check in with you. Is there anything from anything that we've talked about, anything in Kate's journey that you want to ask a question about or offer a reflection on? Mostly just the, um, the, the church, the, the uh, pastor who, goes on to become a global Methodist is just a traitor. That's all. You're doing great. Keep it up, Kate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's surprising no one when someone leaves for the, the GMC, I think is how it's it's been going. Um, well, the, the funny thing about that was how much he strove to position himself as like, I have no opinion on this. I just want to keep people in the vote. 
like of the church, like right up until he left. Yeah, he's like, I'm gonna get on my little escape raft and bye. Right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No. Yeah. And how often is that? Is that the story that we hear of people being like, I'm neutral. I don't want to affect anything. But you know that by that's that's the problem with wanting to enact more progressive policies is that mm-hmm. neutral actually holds everybody back. And we know it. But mm-hmm. it's um, for congregations who like to be fair and balanced. Uh, neutral seems fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had that. We actually had that discussion during our disaffiliation legislation um, we were we were having a whole lot of of folks coming up just to complain about how we were actually holding people to the 50 percent of their property value, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, OK, we need to get this crap back on track because we actually need to vote at some point. Um, so I went up and, and I was like, I asked to make a speech for and I told the story of how my grandparents had lost their middle child at six months old. This is the, the, my dad's older sister, Vicki and how one, one of the disaffiliating churches, um, Davis Memorial had allowed the extended family to buy out like the whole first two rows of a new section of the cemetery so that they could all be together. And how there's like 18, 20 members of my family buried at Davis Memorial. Um, and how every time I go up to Cumberland, I make a point to stop at that cemetery and to, to spend time with, you know, um, the Macariths and the Myerses and the everybody who's there. And how I was so grateful for the work that Davis Memorial had done. Because without them and their support, my father doesn't grow up as a Methodist. Um, and without growing up as a Methodist, he doesn't take me to a Methodist church as a kid. And I don't find my call in the Methodist church. Um, and how I wanted to offer a blessing to this church as they went and to thank them for the work that they had done and were continuing to do, um, and to bless and release them into this new season of ministry. Um, I know that there were some folks on the more progressive side who were not fans of that speech Mm. because they are not, they are past the point where they can offer a bless and release. Like they are, they are just like GTFO. Okay. Yeah. No, that's Um, where I am. (laughs) And I completely understand that, but because of my family ties to that church, because I, because I've seen the work that churches have to do, and because, you know, for, for all of the drama of growing up in a church that was functionally Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. I found my call there. I found my life's work there. I found God there. And there's a part of me that cannot turn my back on that. Mm. And so offering that space of blessing and releasing felt like the most honorable thing to do and to, to name the ways that this church had impacted my family's life and how those, those moments of offering comfort to this devastated family were echoing down generations 
for us. You know, it was no more than naming the truth, right? And I wasn't anticipating the response to that. Because on the one hand, you know, there, there were the progressive folks who were like, well, I'm glad you said that because I sure can't. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like for the rest of conference, I kept getting stopped by people who were like, I heard what you said, and I'm so glad you said that. And, you know, here's my, you know, and I ended up having to do like pastoral care for like 50 different people, which is a different issue. Of course. I didn't anticipate that it would strike that nerve that so many of us have that story of having grown up in churches where, you know, the theology they teach is no longer the theology that we espouse, that we accept. And yet they're still part of our story. Mm-hmm. And I think the gift of being able to code switch sometimes theologically. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain how else to name that. Um, but the gift of, you know, of being able to to speak, you know, conservative Christian when I need to, um, of being able to to say with honesty to my congregation, you know, that I'm not here to hang rainbow pride flags out of every orifice. I'm here to make disciples of Christ for the transformation of the world. If that's something you're interested in, we'll get along just fine. Being able to to see where I've come from and to not lose that mm-hmm. is part of that grounding, right? Yeah. To know that it is possible to change, that it is possible to grow, and that people like me being visible, even when it draws fire, isn't for the acceptance of the progressives. It isn't for being famously queer is, is the phrase I'm, I'm coming up with. And it's not a great one. Showing up is what we do because there are little kids like us Mm -hmm. growing up in churches like that Mm -hmm. who need to see people like us and know that there's, there doesn't have to be a choice between faith and identity that you can be queer and christian that you can be non-binary and christian you can be trans and christian that the divine is not barred to you because you don't agree with the people around you or the people you grew up with about who god is and what god does yeah i yes thank you (laughs) i think that that is a beautiful place to leave this conversation are you available for another half hour to talk about extracurricular activities as a pastor for the minisode yeah absolutely let's do that uh but yeah let's leave this on that note because that was beautiful thank you kate ethan will you sign us off of course friends thanks for listening this has been an episode of what the hell is a pastor we are ethan and joe and kate And we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at whatthehellisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, bonus content, and more. Thanks for listening, and go make the world safe for trans folks, friends.